When it comes to uh, divorce, as I mentioned a little bit last week, uh, there's many views, many views throughout church history. Same with remarriage, which we're also going to talk about today. But let me just run through a few of these camps, these views, if you will. Five for each. Five for divorce, five for remarriage. Uh, and it's not even all the views that are out there. Okay? Uh, for divorce, there is the absolutely no divorce under any circumstance group. There's a group that believes that. Uh, I was raised in some of that. Uh, then there's those who believe there's only one exception for divorce, which may be the one mentioned in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, or 1 Corinthians 7. It's a toss-up. Then there are those who believe there are two exceptions for divorce. Then there's those that believe in only three. And then, of course, there's always been those that say you can get divorced for any reason. Okay? And then there's a whole different set of views when it comes to remarriage after divorce. Now, not after the death of a spouse. That would be, that's why we see remarriage after divorce. Some say absolutely no remarriage after divorce. Nothing. Okay? Some say no remarriage after divorce unless the former spouse gets married or the former spouse dies. Others say you can remarry no matter what. And finally, there are those who believe that if you obtained biblical grounds for your divorce, you have biblical grounds for remarriage, as long as you marry another believer who is also a candidate for marriage. There's some differences out there. But what does the scriptures say? What do they say about these issues? We can guess all day. We can state our opinion. But in the end, none of that matters. God is going to have the final say. And his word uh, has already said it. And his word is final. Okay? Um, you know, after I've communicated my will to my kids and it's not what they wanted to hear, they will ask me a question and hope that I'm going to answer in their favor. To which I say, do you really want to hear me say it again? Okay? We can experiment and can see if I'll change my mind, or you can just take my word. Amen? Yeah. God's word is the standard. Marriage is his institution. We're his people. The world will do marriage with it, whatever they please, but it's not for the church, God's people, to be fast and loose with something that is most sacred to him. And I say that in light of all the damage that's in our world, and uh, we want to do our best to minister to people. So let's, uh, let's, let's begin. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you've heard me teach on this before, um, well, you get to hear me teach on it again. Okay? Uh, as Peter says, I will continue to remind you over and over and over again what God's word has to say to us. So I'm going to read uh, 10 through 16, and then I'll skip to verse 26 and read through 28, and then we'll begin back in uh, verse 10. So Paul says... In verse 10, he says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. 
A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Verse 26, Paul says, I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. I want to stop there because I don't want to talk about virgins. Okay? It's really not in the scope of what we're talking about here. The, the verse break is in the wrong place, and we'll discuss that when we get to the text. Okay? I forgot to have you stand up. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. Controversial subjects make you forgetful, but we will teach the text anyhow. Father, Lord, every, every person in this room has sinned. They've failed. And some with just grave sin. And Lord, you've redeemed it through their faith and repentance and walking with you, Lord. You've made beautiful things out of what's ugly. And Lord, we're, we're all going to sin again in relationships outside of that. Lord, there's so many difficulties in this life because of us. In sin, our mothers conceived us and we were brought forth in iniquity. Lord, knowing what we are, help us to be gracious to others because they're just like us. And it is by your grace that we did not fall further than we did. And so, Lord, teach us your text this morning, not just to know the facts, but Lord, help us to have compassion toward people because so many lives are a mess. And um, Lord, you're in the business of fixing things. Help us to partner with you in all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So, yeah, so let's go back to verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So Paul says, now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. I'm sorry, that's verse 11 as, as well. So now to the married. Okay, just prior to this, Paul was addressing, you know, widows and those who had never been married. Now it's to the married. But Paul says, he makes this interesting statement. Uh, he says, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. What does he mean by not I, but the Lord? And then I, not the Lord. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. Here in verse 7, uh, verse 10 rather, Paul's referring to Jesus's teaching on marriage, divorce or marriage, in Matthew 6 and 19. Okay, he's talking about, this is what the Lord has already covered Okay? In those passages, he would address addressing a very specific context, which is actually different than what Paul is about to address. Okay? In Matthew 6 and 19, Jesus was talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage when it pertains to a husband and a wife who are both in the covenant community, the Jewish community. In other words, he was providing instruction for believers who were married to one another. Okay? And he said, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. Matthew 19, 9. So when one believer is married to another believer, there's only one permissible grounds for divorce. Divorce is not required, as we talked about last week, but it's permissible when one or the other partner is sexually immoral. And so believing couples, they are expected by the grace of God the help of the covenant community, the church, not to just stick it out. I hate it when I see marriages that are just sticking it out. 
We're just pulling through because, well, there's no divorce or, or whatever. I, I think that's terrible. Together, we should be helping them strive to achieve a marriage that glorifies God and is enjoyable for one another. You know, by his grace, he expects believing couples to be heirs together of the grace of life. He expects that. He has that in store for every Christian marriage. Okay? That's 1 Peter 3, 7, by the way. But he knows, as you know, we're in a sinful world. Things don't always turn out that way. And believers get divorced from one another. They, or they stay married and they hate one another. They avoid one another. The purpose for marriage, which is relationship, to banish loneliness. It's amazing to me that married people can be lonely for 40, 50, 60 years. It's not God's intention, but it happens. No, what happens sometimes, of course, is one or the other spouse leaves the other. And so Paul says that Jesus says that they're to remain unmarried or be reconciled to their spouse. Because if they remarry, Jesus said that they would then become an adulterer, an adulteress. Some, though, for whatever reason, uh, they don't remarry. They do not reconcile with their spouse, and they're content to remain as they are unmarried. Either their spouse is an unbearable human being, or they're an unbearable human being. Do you know some of those? It's okay to say it. I mean, there are some unbearable people, okay? There's pride, there's unrepentance, there's bitterness, there's unforgiveness, okay, from one or both parties, and it's just them, it's better to just stay away. Okay? Not God's design, but it happens. And Paul recognized that here. It happens. And whatever the symptoms, sin is always at its root. Verse 12. Now he says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, a brother is a believer, he's married to a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So, but to the rest, that is, this other category of married people, which the Lord did not address in Matthew 5 and 19. So, what is this other category of married people? Well, it's not the unsaved married to the unsaved. For God, he does not meddle or concern himself with such affairs. As Hebrews says, he, he disciplines his own children. Okay? And if he doesn't discipline you, it just means that you're not his. Okay? He doesn't meddle in their affairs. They don't belong to him, so he doesn't have any prescriptions for them. They're not in the covenant. This other category of married people refers to a believer that is married to an unbeliever. You see, Jesus, he never addressed that situation because in Israel, among the Jews, they were all covenant people who were obligated to live by the terms of the covenant. But you see, that's not the case with Paul. When he ventured out on his very first missionary journey into the pagan world, Every person in every city he entered was an unbeliever. Imagine that. Imagine the first thing you see when you enter a city is an altar to a pagan deity. And you go 10 more feet and there's another one. And then there's a temple to this deity, a temple to this deity. There's no crosses, there's no churches, there's no believers. A very different world, okay? But as Paul would preach the gospel, people would get saved and quite often only one person in the marriage would come to faith. Now what? Now what? So instruction is necessary for those believers who are married to unbelievers. Okay? So Paul says, I, not the Lord, say. He says, I'm going to address something that Jesus did not. He didn't cover it. So Paul, for the sake of God's people, he has to cover this situation. Now, because Paul said it and Jesus doesn't, does it make it less authoritative? 
It's equally authoritative because Paul received this instruction from Jesus, just as Jesus promised the apostles of the book of John. He said, I'm going to lead you in all of this, okay? All scripture we know is breathed out by God, okay? Through his prophets and apostles, and they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. Both Paul and Peter say that. So these words were spoken by Paul, but they didn't originate from him, okay? They're from the Lord. Later on in the chapter, Paul addresses a scenario for which God revealed no instructions. And so Paul very clearly tells us what his opinion is, okay? Which is different from what he says here. He'll make it clear. He's speaking here under authority by the Spirit. And over there, he says, the Lord has not said anything about this. So he says, I'm going to give you my opinion. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. So in verse 10, Paul was looking back to what Jesus taught about marriage in one context. That's believers married to believers. And here in verse 12 through 16, Paul's referring to what Jesus wants in another context. Believers married to unbelievers. Now what Paul is not addressing here is when a believer seeks out and marries an unbeliever. Okay, this is condemned everywhere in Scripture. Believers are not to marry unbelievers, ever, ever, okay? Paul is addressing marriage where both spouses were pagan when they got married, but then later on, Paul came to town, preached the gospel, and only one of them came to faith in Christ. So let's take a look. If a believing man is married to an unbelieving woman, and she, the unbelieving woman, wants to remain married to the believer, The believer, the believing man in this one, is not to divorce her. You see, her unbelief is not grounds for divorce. Now, it's very possible that it was in the old covenant, but it's not in the new, okay? So if she wants to stay in the marriage, the believer must remain in the marriage. Also, the believing husband must treat his pagan wife just as he should a believing wife. Ephesians 5, 25, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And he's to make it his aim to win her to Christ. Got it? And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. So the opposite is true. A believing woman married to an unbelieving man who wants to remain married to the believer, the believer is not to divorce him. His unbelief is not grounds to divorce him. In fact, she must also treat her pagan husband the same way she should treat a believing husband, and she must make it her aim to win him for Christ, as Peter says, by way of a quiet and gentle spirit, First Peter 3, 1 through 4. The duty of the spouse does not change the Christian spouse toward their spouse. It's the same, whether the, their spouse is a believer or a pagan. So a spouse's unbelief in Christ is not grounds for a believer to divorce them. He says, for the unbelieving Husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Everything up to this point has been super simple. Okay? How does the believing spouse sanctify their pagan spouse, and how does this make the children holy? Both words, sanctify and holy, they, they come from the same Greek root, which means to set something apart to designate it for a specific purpose or use. So what does it mean that an unbelieving spouse and the children are sanctified by the believing spouse? It would have been nice if Paul had just come out and said it, but he doesn't. So I get to take a sanctified guess 
at what this all means, okay? Uh, we can say for sure that the unbelieving spouse is not saved by the faith of the believing spouse. No one in Scripture is saved by the faith of another. Everyone must believe for themselves, even our children. Amen? There are commentators that have said this of a certain theological persuasion, um, and when they make their case, it doesn't come from the Scriptures. Okay, so just banish the thought. Okay? In verse 16, when he talks about this again, makes clear that they're not saved by virtue of the spouse's faith, but the believer in the marriage is there, okay, and I believe appointed by God to influence the unbeliever to believe unto salvation, which seems to explain the nature of this kind of sanctification. The believer's presence in the marriage, their testimony, their example, their love and lifestyle, okay, is ordained by God to be a light to the unbeliever to influence them for Christ. I mean, if you think about it, without a, a believer in the marriage, a pagan couple would just be in an echo chamber of paganism by which everything in the home reinforces pagan principles, lifestyle, beliefs, and everything else. But if you throw a believer in there who's faithful to the word to live out the scriptures, there's no echo, for one. There's nothing to reinforce false religion, but their presence and influence direct everything back to truth, to Christ, to the gospel. Amen? So I think for that reason, the family is unique. It's especially in a pagan world, okay, that family is they're sanctified, they're set apart from other pagan families for the purpose of the believer to influence them to Christ. Okay, that's, that's my best guess. You okay with Okay, if you're not and you have something better, I, I would love to hear it, okay? And, and you may have something better. Please bring it to me. All right. He says, but if the unbeliever departs, this is where we really want to pay attention. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart, or her. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So as we've said, the unbelief of the pagan is not grounds for the believer to, to divorce them. But if the, the unbeliever, the pagan, departs, that is, abandons or divorces the believer... The believer must let them depart. Now, Paul has already used the word depart to mean divorce, okay? In verse 10, he said that a woman is not to depart from her husband, of course, and the husband is not to divorce his wife, he says, so he uses them interchangeably there. They're the same thing. It says that the wife who uh, departed from her husband is said to be unmarried in verse 11. Get it? So whatever the nature of the departure, it caused a divorce, now, how the divorce was obtained, it's not said. However, it was obtained in that culture uh, was how it was done. And however it can be obtained in our culture is perhaps how it's done. Uh, of course, uh, there's this whole issue of the state's involvement, which it should be not involved at all, by the way. Uh, it's not a good thing that the state is involved. Um, in fact, I, I won't sign a state wedding certificate, because I will not be an agent for the state. So if I do a wedding, I do a purely religious wedding, which makes them married, by the way, amen? And then they have to get somebody else to sign the paperwork, okay? Uh, and they're married, with or without the state's permission. Do we understand that? Uh, wedding certificates in America isn't 200 years old. So they decided at some point to uh, institute that, and the history says a lot of it was to keep people like me and Shandy from being married. 
It specifically mentions Filipinos. Uh, and then they found it, hey, this is lucrative and it gives us more control. So now it's across the board and uh, I don't care what the state. It's, it's God. The covenant of marriage belongs to God. And so when a couple gets married, it's before God and the people of God. Okay? If you have any questions about my position on that, uh, we can chat about that as well. Uh, the state shouldn't be involved in marriage. They shouldn't be involved in the church. Um, but that's kind of another thing. In the, in the ancient Greek world, yeah, there could have been some formal contractual means uh, for the divorce, for the abandonment, perhaps, maybe not. So here in verse 15, we must maintain Paul's meaning for the word depart. He uses the word to mean divorce. So if, if the unbeliever abandons the marriage, if the unbeliever seeks a divorce, wants a divorce, wants to leave the marriage, wants the believer out of the marriage, the believer must let them depart. The phrase, let them depart, is an imperative in the Greek. It is a command. You understand that? It's not a suggestion. It's not, uh, it's not an option. Uh, it is a command of God that if the unbeliever wants this to be done, the believer is not allowed to try and stop the unbeliever or influence them to stay. They must get out of the unbeliever's way and let them have what they want, which is divorce. The believer, Paul says, is not under bondage to remain in circumstances like this. God does not want the believer to remain with an unbeliever who wants a divorce. God wants the believer out of the marriage. He wants them to be at peace. I imagine that that's the first time many of you have heard that. Okay? It's there in the text. I can't change it. It means what it means. Okay? So here in 1 Corinthians, God provides another ground for divorce but it's for a marriage where a believer is married to an unbeliever. So fornication, sexual immorality, is grounds for divorce in any marriage, okay, regardless of if the immoral spouse is a believer or not. And when an unbelieving spouse wants out of a marriage, the believing spouse is required by God to let them go. But remember, if the unbelieving spouse wants to stay, the believer is not permitted to divorce. Okay? Why? Paul says, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you save your wife? God wants the believer in the marriage as long as the unbeliever wants to be in the marriage. Now, why would an unbeliever want to divorce a faithful, believing spouse? It's because they don't want to hear it anymore about Jesus. Okay? So as long as the unbeliever wants to remain in the marriage, it's the believer's mission by God to influence their unbelieving spouse for Christ that they might be saved. Okay? Peter prescribes for the wife the way that God would have her win her unbelieving husband. Uh, that's 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. So if you're a believing woman married to an unbelieving man who wants to stay married, Peter's instruction is God's means for reaching your man. Live it, trust God, and see how he uses it. Okay? I've seen a number of husbands won this way by their wives. Okay? A number. It's not a guarantee, but it's the best means for a redemptive end. So wives, if you're married to an unbeliever and you want counsel in how to reach him, let's sit down. Let's talk about 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. All right? Okay. Now, when it comes to the discussion of divorce and the grounds for it, um, especially as we look out into our culture, we see it happening. As Christians, our sense of sympathy 
and our concern for justice should rise to the surface. Okay, because we're forced to ask, you know, what about physical abuse? Who's thinking it? Well, you're all thinking it now. <clears throat> what about verbal abuse? You know, what about a spouse who is literally, control, literally controlling their spouse, confining them to the home, keeping them from family and friends, from fellowship with the church? In other words, what about a spouse who has essentially enslaved the other and made them a captive? These are real issues in our culture. Um, I watched a video the other day of, a, uh, of the police uh, getting on top of a porch to get in through a broken window to save a woman who was chained to the floor by her husband. By her husband. Okay. First, we must always protect the victim of real abuse. Okay. And oftentimes, that means getting them away from their spouse, even if it requires law enforcement. We've done it. Okay. And we'll do it again. If the abuser is a professed believer, especially if they attend this church, we would immediately take action to protect the abused, and then we would confront the abuser as Jesus tells us to in Acts, or not Acts, but in Matthew 18, 15. If there's no repentance, we bring the case before the elders and we would remove them from the fellowship. And as Jesus says, we would treat him or her like an unbeliever and we would no longer consider the context of their marriage in Matthew 19, a believer married to a believer, but 1 Corinthians 7, a believer married to an unbeliever. And if there's just no repentance, we'd pray like crazy that they would want to leave. We do not want that believer to be in bondage to that kind of insanity. Okay, just moral wickedness. Okay. Now, I wish that I could address all the issues and just you know, kind of um, download it into your brain and we'd have it all worked out. It's not that simple. And many things is case by case. Uh, we have to investigate. I've had people call me, say, my spouse is abusing me. And then as I investigate, no, it's, it's not abuse. Um, you wanted your spouse to get in trouble for you running into the doorframe or something like that. And investigations have to happen. It's case by case. We look into it. We investigate. There are problems, you guys. Amen? We live in a broken world. We want to minister to people. We want to get to the bottom of things. We want to help. And, um, and as our church grows, um, so do the challenges. Okay? But it's, it's a good work. Amen? To be in the, the ministry of reconciliation, of redemption, we, we want to be a part of this. We want to see people come to Christ, be restored, and all of that. Okay, remarriage. That one is just as controversial as divorce. Maybe even more so, okay? So what about remarriage for those who have gotten a divorce? Is there such a thing, or is that for widows and widowers only? Let's return to Matthew 19 real quick, just to look at this text again. Jesus said, <clears throat> I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Notice something about the text, that adultery is only committed when a person remarries after a divorce that was not obtained through biblical grounds. You get it? Let me say it again. Adultery is only committed according to the words of Jesus, when a person remarries after divorce that was not obtained through biblical grounds. So listen, if a believer divorces their spouse, or if a believer divorced their spouse for reasons other than fornication, and then remarried, that's when Jesus says they would be an adulterer and adulteress. But if a believer did divorce his or her spouse for fornication, because they fornicated, they would not be committing adultery if they remarried. You see, remarriage 
is not a problem when they had biblical grounds for divorcing their spouse, but they must marry another believer that is also a candidate for marriage. Does that make sense? Okay. Paul also speaks of remarriage in 1 Corinthians 7, 26 through 28. So listen to some of the context. He says, I suppose, therefore, I suppose, therefore, that it is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So in the city of Corinth, Paul mentions this present distress. Uh, Every scholar I know of believes that persecution broke out in the city of Corinth against the church, against Christians. And for that reason, Paul gives his opinion about what should happen in regard to marriage and all that. He thought it would be best for people to not pursue marriage, but remain single like he was. Okay? I think the idea is that it would be quite sad to get married in that current distress, and then the day after, watch your spouse be drowned or burned at the stake for their faith. Paul's saying, I, I would spare you from that. Okay? So Paul continues with his counsel. He says, so... Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, the term bound means to be married. Not sure if you view it like that. And the term loosed means divorced. In order to clarify, uh, Paul did not mean that married people should get divorced to be single like him. It's not what he's saying, okay? Because of the current distress in Corinth, Paul counseled those who were divorced, not to seek a wife. That is, he counseled them not to get married, remarried. Look at the next verse. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. Did you catch that? The word but refers to the last thing said in verse 27, where Paul counseled a divorced person not to seek remarriage. He didn't use the word remarriage because there isn't a Greek word for remarriage. Okay? The context clearly determines what he meant. So Paul counsels this divorced person not to get remarried, but even if he does remarry, he has not sinned. For clarity, let me put on the screen the last part of verse 26 with the first part of verse 27 with the word remarried. He says, are you divorced from a wife? Do not get remarried. But even if you do remarry, you have not sinned. Assuming they divorced with biblical grounds and married another believer who also was a candidate for remarriage, what's the conclusion if they remarried? You have not sinned. You have not sinned. Whenever someone obtains a divorce on biblical grounds, that's Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, they are a candidate for remarriage as long as they marry another believer who is a candidate for marriage. That's what the scriptures teach. Okay. So let's conclude this. For divorce... When one believer is married to another believer, Jesus provides one exception for divorce, and that is sexual morality. And when a believer is married to an unbeliever, the believer may divorce their spouse if their their unbelieving spouse is sexually immoral. But if the unbelieving spouse abandons them or just wants a divorce, the believer is commanded to let them go. The believer is not allowed to get in their way because God wants the believer out of the bondage to that unbeliever. Remarriage, okay? In the scriptures, anyone who obtains a divorce on biblical grounds is a candidate for remarriage as long as they marry another believer who is a candidate for marriage, okay? I don't know how it can be any more clear from the scriptures on this whole issue. Um, I've been accused of being a liberal. Um, I think it's funny. (laughs) 
Others say, you know, the more conservative view, and I tell people, I don't care. I care what the text of Scripture says. I don't want to permit something that God forbids, and I don't want to forbid something that God permits. I don't want to play fast and loose with the institution of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I want to hear from Christ, and I don't care what anybody else's opinion is. Okay? And if you have never been divorced, it is, as Paul would say, to the praise of God's glorious grace. It's by his grace that you did not marry into a mess with a, a hateful person, a sexually immoral person. It's by God's grace that you have what you have. Amen? And any success is attributed to him. Okay? So I am of the firm position that we should be compassionate to those who have, okay? and their lives have been put to shambles because of various things, maybe be their own choices. Okay? But even people that make poor choices, we want to see them repent. We want to see them redeemed. We want to see beauty come out of their lives. Condemnation from the church is not going to help redeem those in such pain and such trouble. Okay? People go into marriage ignorant of the word of God all the time. How many of you went into marriage ignorant of the word of God? I was basically psychoanalyzed as a compatible person for Shandy going into marriage. That is really stupid, okay? (laughs) It's just crazy. We need the Word of God to speak to us. People enter into marriage uninformed all the time. That's why when I marry people, I require they meet with me at least five times, and we go systematically through the Scriptures to look at God's purpose for marriage, His design, the responsibilities, the roles, all of that. So I can inform them. And then later on, through their marriage, they can constantly look back to what's my role in the marriage? Who am I? What's my responsibility? Okay. I want to please Christ. So I need to know what Christ says about marriage. Amen? Yeah. How many of you know your job description from the scriptures? I encourage you to know every verse on the subject. And by the grace of God, master it for the sake of his glory, the good of your spouse. So that's that. If you have any questions about uh, what I've taught, um, I would love to engage with you. Uh, If you need prayer this morning uh, for anything, whether it's what we've addressed here today, uh, we would love to pray for you. If If it's too hurtful, it's too private for you, contact me or one of the elders during the week. Uh, a a trusted woman in the church. Um, We want to minister to you. And um, so, yeah. So we'll pray for you up here if you want. Some ladies will be up here if um, other women need need prayer. Okay. Why don't you stand up? We'll close this out. Uh, No last song. I think we, Lori took up most of the time. (laughs) Well, Lord Jesus, um, you're the one that said, if anyone falls into any any sin, transgression, you who are spiritual, go to them in a spirit of gentleness. Lord, we want to see people's lives changed. We want to see um, marriages healed. We want to see divorced people uh, healed and recover. We want to see marriages reconciled. Lord, we want to minister. And I don't know all the circumstances in somebody's life. And I don't want to jump to conclusions. Um, So I pray, Lord, that by the teaching and the instruction of your word, that it would it would open the conversation up and that, that people could just be free, be forgiven, be restored. And um, Lord, help the rest of us. Uh, I know some of us have come from some pretty rigid backgrounds uh, that lack grace and compassion. 
Um, I just pray that you'd minister to them and help to see their fellow brothers and sisters in brokenness, that, Lord, they would hurt for them and they'd, they would do all they can to come alongside and help, encourage. And, Lord, where there's unrepentance, we want to be diligent to address it. Uh, we don't want to be um, permitting, Lord. So help us to be wise. Help us to be true to your word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.